Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you that you invite us to come to you. Lord Jesus, thank you that you made it possible. You are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. No one comes to the Father, to you, except through him. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your death for us. We thank you for your resurrection. We thank you that right now you are ruling and you are reigning. You've never abdicated your throne and you never intend to. Lord, you have all things under control. So, Lord, with all the upheavals in the world today, we're asking you, Lord, that you would help us to fix our minds, set them on you, because you are worthy and you have it all under control. We thank you, Lord, that when it's all said and done, it will be exactly the way that you want it. And so we're looking forward to that day. And so now, Lord, I pray as we open up your word uh, to us and, and as we sit in your presence, we ask, God, that you would help us to understand and to apply what you have for us today. In Jesus' name. Well, Mark Chavalis, professor of history, writes these words. Moses had a unique status among humans. He was a prophet, a priest, the leader of Israel. He was a poet. He was a miracle worker, the hero of the Exodus, mediator between God and people, a writer and interpreter of God's words, and the founder of Israel's religious practices and political administration. Chavos goes on to say, Moses is mentioned almost 800 times in the Bible. Isn't that amazing? How many times? In various places in the Old Testament, Moses is described primarily as a man of God and a servant of the Lord. Well, that's a lot to put on a tombstone. If you can find the tombstone. See, because Scripture says that God buried him without a trace. Now, I wanted to begin our time in God's word today in as positive a light as possible because we're going to talk about death, something that we don't like to talk about. But, you know, it reminds us, though, of what we are all going to encounter at some point. Barring a miracle, every one of us will die. That's the reality. And we're all going to experience what even Moses, as great of a man as he was, he experienced also. Anybody who has experienced the loss of a loved one, we know the pain that it causes. It's a sad time. And for weeks and months and even years afterward, grief is a continual companion, isn't it? It's painful. There's a hole in the heart that doesn't quite go away. Now, it's true in personal relationships. But in Moses' case, and also Israel, death is the same way as well. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, Moses was the only human leader Israel ever had in their first 40 plus years through their existence. You know, and if, if you lived through the Exodus and then you were able to see Moses pass off the scene, how many profound memories would you have had of this man of God? Well, our message for today includes two passages of scripture. First is Deuteronomy 32, 48 to 52, and then 34, 1 to 12. It's a straightforward account of the death of the man of God, the servant of the Lord. Today, we're going to read the Lord's perspective on the life of this servant, and we're going to hear Moses' eulogy as given by the Lord himself. So we're going to simply read what the Lord has to say about his servant. And then I will offer words of challenge as well about what the Lord reveals concerning his character in this account, and then the legacy that Moses has left behind 
for all of God's people, including you and me today. So follow along as I read the verses beginning in Deuteronomy 32, uh, 48 to 52. And then we'll skip down to 34, 1 to 12. That very day, the Lord Moses, or the Lord spoke to Moses, go up this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession, and die on the mountain in which you go up, and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor, and was gathered to his people, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel, at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go in there, into the land that I'm giving to the people of Israel. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I've let you see it with your eyes, but you should not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, as in God, buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. Amazing. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. And there has not risen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Mark that. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Thus a mighty servant went to be with the Lord. He was, as Yahweh said, gathered to his fathers. And one would think this would be a sad time of incredible mourning and grief. But did you catch it? In the verses that we just read, there was exactly one verse that referred to tears. That's 34 verse 8. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And that's it. That's it. But you know, I find things here in this account that make me go, hmm. Like Moses' condition. He was 120 years old. And even though he was that age, he was certainly up to the task of leading his people, unlike some leaders in our country, in our day. See, there was nothing wrong with Moses. Physically, his eye was undimmed. He needed no glasses if they had glasses back then. His vigor was unabated. Mentally, he was totally there. 
For what did Moses just accomplish? As we spent almost a year and a half going through all of these sermons, he preached hour after hour after hour at 120 years old. And then he wrote all of his sermon manuscripts down in the book that we call Deuteronomy. As it says in Deuteronomy 31.9, then Moses wrote this law, this Torah, and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. So he spoke and he wrote. He was sharp at 120. And also Moses was not in any danger, targeted by any anti-Moses factions in Israel or in the nations around about them. So in short, the only reason why Moses died the day he did was because the Lord appointed that day as Moses' last. I'm reminded of Hebrews 9.27, what the writer said about it. He says, and just as is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. See, David also stated that, that our days are all numbered. All of them were written down, as he said in Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16, part of that great pro-life psalm. Here's what David wrote. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. We all have an entry in our books. God knows the day of our death. Yahweh told Moses, today is your last day on this side of eternity. Today I require your soul from you. But that's the way it is with all of us, isn't it? How merciful of the Lord, though, to communicate to Moses the day and the place of his death. Rare it is that the Lord does this to any of us. Rare it is that anybody wakes up in the morning singing Don McLean's song, American Pie. Remember that song way back in the day? Part of the lyrics go like this, this will be the day that I die. Who wakes up singing that song? The point is, when our appointed day arrives, it arrives. Let's be ready to meet the Lord for the day of our death is coming. Make sure that you know him as he really is presented in Scripture as the scripture claims that he is. See, Jesus is God in the flesh. He is king of kings. He's Lord of lords. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you know him? And most importantly, does he know you? Hmm. Now with that good news ringing in our ears, let me point out something else that doubtless makes one go, hmm, when it comes to Moses' death. See, the text tells us exactly how many humans were there at Moses' graveside service, the deceased. There was not one human who grieved at Moses' graveside. It was God and Moses alone. See, the one who finished the book of Deuteronomy gave the straightforward statement in 34, 5 to 6. So Moses, a servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Where's where's his grave? No one knows. There seems to be some mystery surrounding the details of his death. But theories 
abound. Believe me. I spent a lot of time doing the research. They're all over the map on this. But let me give you just one detail among many, and it happens to be an inspired detail. This was is found in the book of Jude, the letter of Jude, verses 8 through 10. And Jude's letter gives an illustration about Moses' death and some of the events surrounding that as an illustration of how false teachers literally rush in where angels fear to tread. And here's what Jude wrote. Yet in like manner, these people, as in false teachers, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. But the bottom line is that God did not see fit to answer all of our questions regarding the location and the manner of how Moses died. God apparently just took his breath away and then buried him supernaturally. The Lord did such a good job of burying him that no one has a clue to the exact spot. No human, that is. But we do know that the devil and Michael do. And so as I mentioned, this account of Moses' death is straightforward. Not much to interpret. A little mystery here and there. But the fact remains, the Lord told Moses, you were going to die today. And he did. But there's some things I want to point out there regarding the Lord's character and Moses' legacy that he left in the wake of his death in the time we have remaining this morning. And so let's take a look at the Lord's character in relating to his servants. And I see in this the Lord's character, his trustworthiness, his grace, and his mercy here in Moses' death. See, the Lord doesn't mince words, does he? He says what he means, and he means what he says. He does not forget what he promises. And he holds himself to his own promises. He's faithful. And he calls his people to account as well. Now, I see this in Deuteronomy 32, verses 50 to 52. And he said this to Moses, And die on the mountain which you go up and be gathered to your people, because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land I'm giving to the people of Israel. God prevented Moses from going there because he made a promise to him many years prior. And the last recorded words Yahweh said to Moses, 34.4, I've let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. How harsh is this? You know, Lord, you might be thinking, can't you just lighten up on poor Moses? After all, Moses just let his stick do the talking. You know, two wax instead of two words. That's it. And Moses was permanently disqualified from entering the land. And why was that? In short, disobedience and the underlying attitude of personal rebellion is devastating in a leader, every believer. See, the issue was Moses knew what the Lord wanted. Moses speak to the rock. He knew it. He heard God say this. But for a variety of reasons, anger being one of them, Moses refused this. He struck the rock. He didn't speak to it. One author describes what Moses did and his underlying motive this way. 
as a failure to trust him enough to honor him as holy. And because millions of eyeballs were on the leader, the Lord took decisive action, permanently disqualifying Moses from partaking in the promise of entering the land. The point is, the Lord will be honored by everybody. No one is exempt, and that especially goes for the leaders. So we don't have time to revisit all the episodes, even in the book of Deuteronomy, of all the times and all the failures that God's people failed to loyally carry out the Lord's ways. They rebelled against him. We know this. We've we've studied it. We've seen it. But in our day, we think about how many churches, how many pastors, where sin is running rampant, especially among the leaders. Again, we don't have time to even list all those who've been compromised. And I would tell you, as your pastor, the only thing I have to offer you is my integrity. The day I begin to live a double life is the day that I need to find another line of work. See, as far as I'm concerned, if I start doing that, I'm done. Because once integrity in a pastor is compromised, it's almost impossible to regain. Would you agree with this? That's why I implore you to pray for me. Pray that God would save me from myself. Because compromise is so easy to do. So let me just say a brief word about the Lord's faithfulness and keeping his word on a positive note. We just saw how the Lord promised Moses that he would not enter the land because when the Lord makes a promise, he keeps it. He keeps his word. Just like his offer of salvation. See, he promised the salvation now and forever to those who are in Christ. And that's why Paul told the Corinthians in his second letter, in chapter 1, verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. But now even fallen leaders can be restored. It's true. We can praise the Lord for that. And the good news is that the Lord demonstrated his grace and mercy to Moses. But though Moses didn't enter the land of promise on this side of the grave, he did enter the land on the other side of the grave, right? Remember when Jesus took Peter and James and John to the top of the mountain that the gospel writers describe as a high mountain? Matthew's gospel reads it like this. And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them, before Peter, James, and John. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah talking with him. So even as the Lord displayed a certain harshness as it appeared to us, it seems like the Lord played the long game, as it were, and displayed a severe mercy. The Lord did not abandon his servant. The Lord was indeed patient and so very kind to Moses. And that's such good news for us, isn't it? And so David writes in Psalm 103, verses 8 to 14, some really, really good stuff about how the Lord sees us, sees his people. And so it's so good. I want you to turn there with me. Psalm 103, verses 8 to 14. Just amazing Old Testament truth here. His faithfulness, his kindness toward us. So again, Psalm 108 or 103, verses 8 to 14. He says, the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. 
He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. This is Old Testament, guys. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Get this. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Old Testament. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we're but dust. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And I love to hear, I love to say it so often. God knew exactly what he was getting when he saved his people. Exactly. Nothing ever occurred to him. And again, this is Old Testament truth. How much more explicit is his graciousness and kindness to us now that the Lord has brought salvation to his people in the death and resurrection of Christ and poured out his spirit upon his people? But there's one more amazing display of the Lord's character I want us to see before we touch on Moses' legacy. And that's found in Deuteronomy 34.10. So turn back there if you would. Deuteronomy 34.10. Some amazing stuff here. It says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. How profound of a statement is that? Notice carefully the wording. The Lord knew Moses face to face. The emphasis is on the Lord knowing Moses. The inspired text could have said, Moses knew the Lord. It didn't say that, did it? It was the Lord who came close to Moses. And we know the story, don't we? The Lord's protection on his servant, even as a baby in the basket. Moses was raised in Pharaoh's household. He learned the ways of the Egyptians all in preparation for the day when Moses, now 80 years old, would encounter the Lord in the burning bush. 80 years old. Any of us here 80? I'm not yet, but getting close. When the Lord commissioned Moses to deliver Israel, the Lord gave Moses a simple answer to his questions of how he could pull it off. And the Lord said simply this, I will be with you. This is the Almighty One who would go with Moses. The Lord did not merely just tell him, go and do it, apply Nike theology, but rather would he say, I will be with you. There's a whole lot we can say, and we can camp out here for a long time, but let me just crystallize it this way. God desires to be with his people face to face. He comes to us. He is with us. That kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? His name is Emmanuel being interpreted God with us. John says that Christ dwelt literally literally tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. You know, I don't think it's a random thing, though, that, that we're finishing up our time in Deuteronomy where we read that the Lord knew Moses face to face as we are getting ready to once again hear the Advent story about God with us. The Lord knew Moses face to face and in Christ, he can know us face to face as well. Even as we prayed earlier in our corporate prayer, no wonder Paul in Ephesians 1.18 prays that the Lord would open the eyes of our heart so that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us. Once again, the Lord is the hero of every story, isn't he? He is a God who is trustworthy 
and he's merciful, and he's gracious, and he's kind. He desires to be with us. We don't have to overcome any so-called reluctance on his part, and he wants us to be with him, and he will be with us. He made the first move, didn't he? He created us. He always makes the first move toward us. And so that said, let me point out a few things I see here regarding Moses' legacy that we can take along with us besides basking in the goodness of the Lord. But first, let's ask a question with an obvious answer. Who was Moses? He was a man. Hello. He had a sinful nature. Yes, we all do. He did. Remember when Moses encountered the Lord in the burning bush? He was 80 years old. He was a marked man. He was a murderer. He murdered an Egyptian 40 years prior to this. What's that, Lord? You want me? A man wanted for murder? To go back to that country to confront the king? Lord, you know I don't talk so good. Lord, I'm not so sure about this. Why don't you get somebody else? So Moses was old. He was scared. And that by his own understanding, he he was wanted for murder. How could the Lord want him, let alone use him to deliver his people from Egypt? What else do we know about Moses? He was a mortal man. And though he lived to be 120 years old, he still died. What about those hundreds of thousands of people who needed to be led into the promised land so that they can take it over by military conquest? To Moses. He wasn't exactly a self-made man, was he? Rather, he was a God-made man. And I see this for two reasons. First, Moses was a God-made man because the Lord did not take Moses' no for an answer. The Lord chose Moses for this task. Remember when Moses told the Lord to find somebody else to lead the people? Remember that story, how the Lord reacted and responded? Here's how he did. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. It's never a good idea to make the Lord mad at you. Even though Moses was absolutely reluctant to do what the Lord commissioned him to do, he still went, and he went because God made him go. He was a God-made man. Second reason I see Moses as a God-made man, as Moses began to cooperate with the Lord, Moses grew stronger in his faith and his closer relationship with Yahweh. And what would it be like for Moses to have been used of the Lord regarding the Nile being turned into blood? Imagine if you were Moses, the very first miracle that God would work through you. What would that be like? And then for the frogs and the lice and the killing of 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 the cattle and then the killing of the firstborn. And then the Red Sea. Amazing, isn't it? How about the daily feeding of the multiplied hundreds of thousands of people? In short, the Lord deliberately put Moses in countless situations so that Yahweh could make Moses into the man that he wanted him to be. And then the day came, and Moses requested of the Lord, show me your glory. This was the highest of the heights of this man of God, this prophet. I mean, how much higher can a mortal man go after this experience? No wonder the Lord knew Moses face to face. See, Moses was a God-made man. Moses was a mortal man. 
So what else can we say about the legacy he's left behind? First, no one is indispensable. No one indispensable. See, if Moses was irreplaceable in the absolute sense, the Lord would have caused him to remain. Remember what his physical and mental condition was on the day that God took his life. His eye was not dimmed. His vigor was not abated. His mind was sharp as a tack. He gave him divine instruction on the last day of his life. Talk about no retirement. His ministry lasted for 40 years. But even as Moses, as great of a man and powerful man as he was, he still needed a replacement. Who was that replacement? It was Joshua. In the absolute sense, who was Joshua? Nobody special. Just a man. Just a man. What made him qualified to be that man? According to Deuteronomy 34, 9, he was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses laid his hand on him. It was a spirit that transformed Joshua. Joshua was nobody, just like Moses. The second aspect of Moses' legacy is, though no one is indispensable, every person is unique, one of a kind. As I mentioned, the Lord would not take no for an answer when he called Moses to the task of delivering Israel from Egypt. God called Moses to a special task. So what can we make of this? First, God calls all to salvation, but not everybody responds. Isn't that true? It's not God's will that anybody perish, but he will not override our will. Christ died for all sin. He was raised as king of kings and lord of lords. He is lord of all and he is lord over all. And we all have a choice. Will we be reconciled to the king or will we live in rebellion against him? It's really as simple as that. But the Lord is on a rescue mission, isn't he? For our own good, though, he could have, God could have caused everyone to be rescued, regardless of whether we wanted to be rescued or not. Isn't that true? He could have said, hey, everybody's coming to heaven with me. Everybody's going to be rescued. You know what what's that's called, right? That's called universalism. That's called baloney. See, that's not the way the Lord set it up with people who have a free will. He's given all of us that. So the Lord calls all people to salvation, but not all will respond. However, the Lord has made every one of us unique. We all have unique gifts. All unique talents, abilities, capacities, resources, you name it, this is what we all have individually. And for all of us as followers of Christ, that translates into this. Some followers will have a huge platform of ministry to impact the world in great, great ways. Millions of people will be able to hear the gospel. Think Billy Graham, for example. Some will be like Moses, whom God will compel into ministry because God has his hand on that person. God will not take no for an answer with that person. But that's only some. It's only a few like that. And though all of us are unique, that does not mean that all of us will have equal impact in the world. See, Jesus had 12 apostles, didn't he? He didn't have millions of apostles. He had 12. And he even lost one along the way, didn't he? There was only enough room for one Moses, one Joshua, one David. And regardless of what one thinks about the eminent philosopher Bill Cosby, sometimes he said some pretty good things. He said this, if everybody was in the parade, then who would be on the sidewalk clapping and cheering? 
So if there can be only relatively few in the body of Christ who are highly visible, what about the rest of us? Is there a place for us? Absolutely. See, we need to learn to serve the Lord in obscurity. Where nobody's watching or very few people are watching. Obscurity is the name of the game here. We're to be loyal to the Lord, whether the influence goes out to the mass of millions and millions of people on six continents, or it's just a small circle of friends and family members. Because indeed, the issue is loyalty, isn't it? It's not so much the extent of the impact. That goes counterculture in our church world today, doesn't it? Because everybody's saying, do great things for God. But what about being loyal to your friends and family where you are? So let me give you three principles, which are fairly self-explanatory. We just walk through them real quick here. First is Ecclesiastes 9.10. It says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you're going. In other words, we all have a shelf life. One day, we're all going to be out of here. And then when we're done here, our work is done too. I really like the words written by an anonymous hand. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. See, we're not promised tomorrow, are we? We're only promised today. So let's serve him today with who we are and how much we have in all of ourselves. Second was in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whatever Paul says, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The context of these verses expresses Paul's desire, even in the mundane things, activities of life, that we would have an effect for Christ on others around us so that he might be glorified. And third is 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4. He says, first of all then, Timothy, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful life and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Notice Paul's aim. We are to pray for those in authority so that we may lead a what? A peaceful and quiet life. This does not mean that we just kind of live our life off in the corner where it's just Jesus and me. No, we're not talking about that. We're talking about here that, that we are to have an influence. And the culture, if it's not hostile to the gospel, or not nearly as hostile as it could be, there will be a little bit better way of propagating that gospel. Now think of our brothers and sisters in North Korea or in, or in Afghanistan. Do they have, are they living a peaceful and quiet life? I think not. Can you imagine all the witness they could have, as strong as they are, if the government were to suddenly tomorrow say, everybody's got complete religious freedom? What would that be like for them? And so as I land the plane here, let me sound one final note. And that note was key to Moses' success as well as ours, where our influence for the Lord is far and wide or with just a few. Again, here's what he says, Deuteronomy 34, 10 to 11. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do. So it comes down to two familiar questions or several familiar questions. 
throughout our lives as followers of Christ, Yahweh in the flesh, we need to continually ask these questions. First of all, who are you, Lord? And what would you have me do? That's the second question. See, the Lord knew Moses face to face. If that is another way of expressing the question, who are you, Lord? I don't know what is, right? Lord, I want to know you. Help me understand you. Help me to know you in intimacy. Those are the things that we want, aren't they? Make it your aim. Make it your priority to do this. It takes time. Set aside the valuable time that you have to pursue him in this way. John 17.3 says eternal life is knowing God in an intimate, personal relationship. It takes time to cultivate that. But let's not forget the what will you have me do part. Again, we see this in Deuteronomy 34.11. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do. Because Moses increasingly knew the Lord, because the Lord continued to reveal himself to Moses, Moses was faithful in accomplishing the tasks the Lord sent him to do. And here's the bottom line, isn't it, for all of this. The Torah of Yahweh, he taught the people to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. So if we're going to apply a legacy of Moses to our lives, we must do the same. Remember in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, Jesus came to Peter. He had just denied the Lord three times. And Jesus was on a mission to restore him. And remember the interaction, don't we? Jesus asked Peter a question. One question, three times. What was that question? We know that question. Do you love me? And every time Moses, or every time that Peter asked, answered the question, Jesus gave him a task. You love me? Feed my sheep. You love me? Tend to my lambs. You love me? Tend to my sheep. So I think it's fitting for me on the Lord's behalf to ask the same question here. But you need to wrestle with what Jesus would have you do. For Peter, the Lord's task was to feed spiritual sheep. So what is the task that you would do? What's the task that he would have you do? He's going to ask, and I'm going to ask on his behalf. Do you love me? If you answer yes, then what task would you do to show the Lord that you love him? And so I think it's appropriate now that we just take a moment that we reflect on that question, then we reflect on the response. So let me ask the question again. So the Lord is asking you, he's asking me, do you love me? If our answer is yes, then what would we do to show the Lord that we love him? Let's take a moment and just wrestle with that question. Lord, in this holy moment, as you shared so many times with your with your disciples, especially in the upper room, you told them over and over again in so many different ways. You called upon them to love you. And you told them, Lord, that if we if, if they loved you, then they would keep the commandments. This is how we prove that we love you. And Lord, here, Mechanicsville, 2022, you're asking us the same thing. You've never wavered 
in your questions. You've never wavered in your challenge. You've never wavered in the demands that you make upon your followers. Lord, you never told your followers to do anything that you were unwilling to do yourself. Lord, you went to the cross. You're telling us the same thing. We have to deny ourselves. We have to pick up our crosses. We have to follow you. So, Lord, we are telling you, at least I'm, my heart's desire is that every person in this room and in the sound of my voice are saying, yes, Lord, we love you. And, Lord, you told us, if we love you, we're to keep your commandments. So, Lord, I pray that you help each one of us to wrestle with this so that each one of us will be able to say something to you. Lord, this is how I want to obey you. This is the command I want to implement in my life. And so, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, by your power, that you will help us to do just that. Thank you, Lord, for for Moses' life. Thank you, Lord, for his legacy. Thank you, Lord, for the character that you revealed concerning the the, the whole scenario about and around uh, surrounding Moses' death. Thank you, Lord, for being faithful, for being kind, for being gentle with us, with your people. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for, again, knowing what you would get, but but yet you saved us anyway. Help us, Lord. Help us to be just like you when we grow up because we're all asking that you would help us to grow up in Christ. So now, Lord, as we turn our attention to our singing and our giving these two acts of worship, I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to do just that, that these indeed would be acts of worship. And we'll thank you, Lord, for what you're doing and what you will do here in Jesus' name.